0: So if you know me, you know one of my favorite subjects in the world is tennis. I've played all my life. I still play every day. I love geeking out about the greatness of the pros and the minutia of technique. One of my favorite books of the year is The Circuit by Rowan Ricardo Phillips, a poetic look at the 2017 professional men's tennis circuit and the joy of being a fan During what might be the greatest moment in tennis history, we are currently watching four of the absolute greatest players of all time play at an extraordinarily high level. I'm talking about Serena Williams, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, and my man Rafa Nadal. Rowan has written an extraordinary book that I really enjoyed reading. So I wanted to have him come by and do the show and just geek out about tennis. So I tweeted him, and next thing you know, he was at the crib talking tennis. This is a fun one that goes deep into our thoughts on tennis just because I love the sport. I hope you do too, because here we go. It's Rowan Ricardo Phillips, the author of The Circuit on Tour Show. Rowan, the book is extraordinary. It's poetic and lyrical, and it's really interesting, the things you choose to pay attention to and not. We go into the US Open, but we don't go into the final. Right? We go into other. So it's not a normal sort of, I'm going to look at who was the best of 2017, but a more poetic and lyrical discussion of the year in tennis. And not just at the majors, but also at the masters. One th- so I wanted to have a really nerdy tennis conversation with you. Ooh. Um, I mean, but we are privileged to be alive and tennis fans at this time watching, what, four of the greatest ever in Federer, Serena, Novak, and Nadal. Absolutely. Right?
1: Absolutely. And then a few uh, Dark Horses as well, when you think about what Stan Varenka has achieved and Uh, what Venus has achieved, you know. Um, Yeah, it's a a marvelous time to not just live with tennis, but also to kind of like start to choose how you will remember it, I feel like. Now there's so many ways to capture tennis. You can go back to YouTube, YouTube. You could subscribe to some screaming content, but really when it comes down to it, that feeling that we had when we were kids and watched tennis that made us like, I don't know whether you like, you know, Malavie Washington or Eric or Gabriella Sabatini or Zena Garrison. But those people also who were incredible players, but they're not the front page story when you think about tennis of a certain year. I think all of that is what makes tennis kind of so so vibrant and so kaleidoscopic you know you kind of like choose your own adventure it's not Go, just the finals
0: going all back in your own personal history who was the first player you really fell in love with watching oh, whoa i would
1: think Either McEnroe, uh, um, because it was a language of tennis I understood from my, from my father and from the Caribbean and all of that, that, that type of game.
0: That or serve and volley. The
1: serve and volley, but also the chicanery in it. You know, it wasn't just muscular serve and volley with, with McEnroe, but you felt like you were kind of like watching somebody think their way out and also talk with his hands. His hands were so soft, you know what I mean? Um, and my father from cricket and everything like that really kind of like, tennis was... It wasn't baseball. The Tennis was the sport where I kind of, like, sit with my pop and admire those types of things. But also, um, if I can cheat, uh, there's also the duplex, right, of Martina and Chrissy, which I really grew up on. Um, I grew up watching a ton of WTA tennis and, uh, you know, that matchup and who could intervene in it, whether it was, you know, Tracy Austin in a given year or when uh, Steffi came up on the scene, which is kind of like... I I it's difficult for me to think of those two separately and I prefer not to because their tennis also is such a beautiful language, you know, the sturdy baseliner versus the really expressive servant volleyer who had to learn how to win. Yeah. You know, thanks for having me on, by the way, this is really cool. You know,
0: Um, they put Federer on the cover and Mm -hmm. you take your time getting to talking about Federer, but I mean, yeah, surprise. I mean, you know, just the, the brilliance of this guy, I mean he can do everything it's amazing
1: yeah and also the way in which the way 2017 began for him mm-hmm. so quickly erased by his incredible skill and success and charisma at the start of 2017 he's on knee surgery we hadn't seen him since he'd literally fallen on his face at Wimbledon mm-hmm. he's going into the Australian Open um 17th ranked 17th seeded. um he was really in a hole. Mm. And it's really a testament to the incredible player that he is, that he just kind of swept that away, not just with the Australian Open, but after that winning some more tournaments
0: before even getting to Wimbledon. But what is it that he does that makes him so dominant? What do you see? Mm. Yes. (laughs) <laughs>
1: I mean, a little bit of everything. His serve, he doesn't have the biggest serve, but he has the most effective serve, I think, um, still. It's incredibly um, diverse in the way that it can attack you. He thinks through points starting with the serve game. Um, but also, you know, you got to win, particularly in the majors, you got to win seven straight matches, and he knows how to get off the court. If you, if you think about it, the matches that he's really like lost, you've been like, whoa. Del Potro in 2017, for instance, yeah. or even uh, this past season against Milman in the U.S. Open, or something like that. When the serve is shaky, yeah. everything else is going to be shaky. It, it usually isn't, but he really builds his foundation. You know, his his the base of his house is on the serve, um, and then after that, he's just incredibly not just smart but brave. He's an incredibly expressive player. So is Nadal, you know. So Djokovic, but just in different ways. Um, but I do think it helps that Federer generally knows how to get off the court. He plays quick points, he plays short points, and that's why I think at 37 he can still be, you
0: know, a Nadal, top three player. Because Nadal and Djokovic have the clay history, their own personal—that's where they come from. So they're right. used to long Grinding. points. They're built for long points. But you think Federer moves through the tournament faster, and that. But and also he can do yeah. everything. Exactly. He can, he can serve you off the court. He can. The forehand is incredible. The backhand is not a, a weakness. And the he volleys... can come
1: in off your first serve.
0: Yeah, right. If right, he feels right, like right. it. I mean, right, there are all these right. ways in which he's kind of the saber.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, man, he's got so many different ways to attack. But I think he's also known like Serena as well. Serena takes her time between points when she needs them, uh-huh. but she plays a quick game. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And she plays a quick point and i think that's kind of saved some of the mileage
0: i mean i feel legs. like serena is the dominant athlete of her era right no question i don't like you know she, she's faster she's more stamina to the
1: internet no question <laughs> <laughs> rah, 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 rah.
0: She, anyway. you know she's she's hitting the ball harder federer is not necessarily hitting the ball harder he's not necessarily the best athlete i'm not sure he's the best at tennis but but
1: his feet i mean he's got the best feet this side of nadal his feet you know tennis first and foremost right you play with your feet yeah you've seen those players where you go whoa something different is happening here and you're an excellent player but it's almost always the feet Mm -hmm. but they could kind of like step around get the body out of the way step around a backhand when they need to not because they have to a bunch of really good American players that step around their backhand because they have to, <laughs> but you know, um, Federer's, Federer's feet and his hands are phenomenal, and that's really it's, it's like with uh, soccer. Johann Cruyff used to say, Soccer football is a game you play with your head, you know, tennis is a game you really play with your feet. You watch him and Nadal and Serena
0: mm-hmm. feet, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, um, Nadal is my favorite of the current generation. Mm, good test. Strength, the bull, the grit, the angles that he comes up with—he seems to me he needs his feet for those. The yeah. future of the game in terms of like the angles and the the stamina and the the body and
1: you know, can we talk about that? Because I think you've you've nailed something. I think about a lot with Naval. Naval is totally the future of the game, and it has happened in terms of technology. He's brought mm-hmm. the babylift, you know, frame to the forefront. Um, those those strings that generate that type, that type of spin. Even you see players now like Kokshinov, who's just starting to break through. who's mm, looking at a Kachin, lot yeah. of top spin off the forehand. But I can't think of another player still after all these years that plays like him. Right. You'll see Dimitrov. You'll see, um, you'll see other players come in and you'll be like, oh, okay, that one-handed backhand, that game, that's kind of Federer-inspired. But I haven't seen a player yet who can't even right. attempt to play like him. So he's he's been the future in terms of kind of like um, our equipment, I think, really, you know. Um, but I'm still waiting to see but somebody who I go... But
0: oh. also, like, in the stroke itself and getting that much topspin, I mean, you don't fully realize it with the angle that they generally show tennis mm. at. But when they do, like, the graphic where they show Nadal's ball bounces up here versus everybody else's ball, then you start to see, like... Trying to hit the ball over your shoulder, right. all day long, is very, very hard.
1: Yeah, they're like body blows, right? I mean, it's like a box of work in your midsection, and it's part of the reason he's had such great success about with uh, against Federer in the past right. by giving him those high. I don't know if you have a two hander or a one handed backhand, but you know when you get those balls shoulder high and you're getting pushed back, it's really it's hard. Hard, to, it's hard to push back against that that wing. But Naval also, you know, Naval has that famous. You know, um, for folks who don't follow tennis obsessively, (laughs) that wraparound follow-through on the forehand, Mm -hmm. where instead of the ball going across his body, it comes back around his head. Mm -hmm. But you watch Federer now, and a lot of top players, when they get a difficult ball, they need to put that much more topspin on. There's a lot more finish like that. And I think that type of finish um, being more prevalent now is also maybe because of his, Mm. his influence, or at least the way that he makes you hit the ball. He's just such a... Ah, oh, he's such a difficult language. I, I always feel for people who have to play him, you know?
0: it's. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the complete package. It's, I mean, it's the mind. It's the body. It's all these incredible strokes.
1: Come on, now, but it's also the pace. I watched him at the US Open this year when things weren't going too well against Dominic Team, and he needs two towels, one from the other side. He's going to take his time, you know, make sure that... Team has to think about every point. Those types of things, which are completely legal, but also just kind of how you s- let things simmer in, in people's minds. I think he's really good at that too. See,
0: because he was losing, he took more time, or just not losing, but he was struggling in that match. He really wasn't winning until the very yeah. end. Yeah. I uh, think it was a fifth set tiebreaker right. that he finally pulled it out. That's right. Um, that was the Ben Stiller was in the crowd <laughs> match. Um, but he you're he saying that he was not in control so he was going to control something else
1: yeah i think i don't know if there's an explicit tactic by serena but you see her do it sometimes too when she's like really needs a big almost like set long reset Mm. maybe not controlling the scoreboard right now but you control something else you need to control time and see what happens i think she's
0: done that i want to talk through this about tennis in general with you we're focusing on men's tennis because your book focuses on men's tennis but we will talk about serena and venus and others as it comes up but Hmm. i love this sentence about nadal you say because we've been watching nadal since he was young right with the culottes right And (laughs) right? right. And and the sleeveless shirts and now he's you know a man you know he's balding and yet still he's still the bull you say rafa nadal at 30 who in recent seasons had seemed gnawed on by father time with all the guilty, wide-eyed ravenousness of Goya's Saturn devouring his son. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great, and it's so fun, and it's just its sort of a lot of the thing that you are doing in this about elevating tennis to this sort of high level. Um, You know, I'm glad that you said... That Djokovic's post-win celebration is corny, and because I, I always felt like that, and it, I thought I was just being, you know, wrong about. I'm like, you're just the only one. Just don't say anything. <laughs> but I do. I Why has that it, ever like, stopped lame. you from that? Uh, <laughs> <I, laughs> wow. I did, and I find that lame. It's
1: just so lame. It's it's um it's asking a lot of the crowd. You know what I mean? It, it comes from what must be a good place, you know, wanting to yeah. be loved, you know? Well,
0: it doesn't seem organic. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> Nadal no, just that's comes a... out and raises his arms, right? Yeah. Serena just waves to the crowd, does this a twirl. Djokovic does this whole, like, yeah. I'm cupping my heart and giving, giving it to, it to you, you, baseline, and giving, giving it, it to you, you. sideline, and all four sides. And it's like, really? It, I, yeah, it's, uh, it,
1: <laughs> it's very, um, yeah. Yeah, but... At those moments, I feel like we maybe learn a lot about what was uh, under the hood of a player when they get through a match. And with Djokovic, I think that essentially it's wanting and needing to be loved, right? There's this – he reminds me a little bit when he does that of people who always make the <sighs> fill in here decision to propose to their partner at a sporting event on the <laughs> Jumbotron or something like that. You know what I mean? It's the old lean in, right? Um, but, you know, there's a little bit of uh, that song Nature Boy in him. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. But he really needs to kind of, like, make that into type, a type of grammar. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that that's what got him through, you know, the U.S. Open final in 2015, right? Where everyone was pulling for Federer, it sounded like. And when, when Djokovic won, he just turned to his box and had this feeling point to his chest. And he was like, you know, I did that. Yeah, yeah I did that. Yeah. I think that's that's what's been under the hood of that player for uh, a long time, and we're seeing it even now. He's back,
0: yeah, and he's
1: <sighs> he looks really hard to beat. What, and what and makes, he's got what
0: makes Djokovic so great. He's
1: really hard to beat. He um, where to begin? You know, Djokovic is someone who I think um, he's a rare player on the men's circuit in that he can attack and dictate a point from the backhand. Right, Mm -hmm. which is what's made him such a thorn in Rafa's side because Rafa wants to attack players' backhands. He's done it to Federer, as good as Federer's backhand is. But Djokovic can control a point from anyone's forehand um, or anyone's backhand, certainly, in that type of conversation. Um, He doesn't make any mistakes off the forehand side at all. Mm -hmm. He's got great variation on the forehand side. He could change pace with it, flat, lots of topspin. Um, He's not afraid to come in. His net game's good, even though his uh, overhead game is famously um, subpar to the rest of his game. He's tough as hell mentally. He does that bouncing thing where he bounces the ball 30, 50 times because he does whatever he needs to to get set. I think there's actually a lot of bravery in that because, you know, you've played— competitive matches and sometimes you feel like you even need more time but you need to get on with it you know what I mean and he just does not he will bounce the ball 50 times if he has to in a big point
0: also Djokovic with his physicality and his ability to run he his court is two steps wider absolutely in terms of the edge, he's not hitting the, like, I'm just trying to get it back, but no. I can hit a strong shot, like, let's say, all the way to the end of the doubles alley. Whereas most players, to the end of the singles right. line, they're like, out from here, I'm just getting it back. Right. But he can get there. I'm staying
1: alive! Yeah,
0: get there and make a strong shot no. um, where other players would have to be just getting it back. And on both both wings. And, right. the, and when he's really stretching and just getting it back, that's even further. That's a shot you wouldn't get back. So his court, his ability to play it back is, on the baseline is wider than anybody else's.
1: Yeah, he's the Gumby of the tour
0: also. He's, like definitely he's Yeah, he's, I think about Plastic Man. Yeah, he's just, the the, same thing. he's
1: just a, a, a total like, escape artist. Um, he's also, I think, somebody who his return game I think it's still even underrated, even though he's called the greatest returner you've ever seen in that he doesn't return like Agassi. Agassi would look to hit winners off the return. Yeah. Um, but Djokovic is just always going to make your life difficult on the return, which means something's getting deep. Even if he's like diving and stabbing at it, it's going to end up deep. Um, and just kind of like that rare skill to always get what should be an advantageous situation for you, your first serve, yeah. and turning it into basically a situation where you're already backing up on the baseline, trying to kind of like find your way in the point. All those little things make him he's really just a tough player. And I give him credit, I give him a ton of credit for coming of age and doing what he's done in the age of peak Federer and peak Nalal, because nobody else was invited to that party.
0: You yeah. know what I mean? And, and he took, stuck his foot in the door. Absolutely. He's you know? definitely part of that conversation. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, Murray's part of a conversation, but he's not a part of that yeah, conversation. I, I,
0: I dislike when tennis media calls it a big four, including Andy Murray, with them, when I think, as you point out, uh, Stan Vavrinka is equal statistically, and I think sort of in terms of output- to murray so then if you're going to say four it should be five but i don't think it should be four or five at all it's there's a big three and then there's other people
1: yeah i mean you know murray with varenka has as many um majors and on different surfaces versus murray's two at wimbledon and one at the australian open but murray's won i don't know how many masters 1000s and warrenka's won one um, plus he has the two gold medals. Those would be the things that people would say kind of separate those two. And I think actually the Tennis Hall of Fame just came up with some criteria for automatic – I'm um, oh. doing air quotes, forgive me – automatic entry into the Hall of Fame, and they made the designation just at the cutoff where Murray would be in and Stan would be out. Okay, but I'm sure that's a complete coincidence. I'm sure that, I'm sure
0: that Stan will get in. I mean, but, I –
1: but Andy did this as well too. Andy came of age in that same at uh, that same group. They easily could have had careers as wonderful but not quite up to par with that elite group as Sanga and Monfi have had. That could have been them as well and they said they put their foot in that door. And
0: it's open. I you know, I find Murray unpleasant to watch because he's just so he's such like a, he's such a worker. There's no elegance, there's no grace. It's just like a just just bang, bang, bang. You know, Vevrinka is much more of an artist with the stick yeah. and will, like, you know, hit the line on a beautiful looper, you know, off the backhand, off the forehand, whatever. And I'm like, I, I appreciate you, and I expect a greater career than he's had. But <sighs> Murray, I'm like, oh, you again.
1: <laughs> the thing about Murray um, that I really like, though, is that he has this incredible uh, shot variation and this playfulness uh, in it. Um, yeah, he is working really hard on the court. But you know, all those drop shots are kind of like moon balls. I know you're making that face. I hate but, the
0: drop shot. But. I, I, I wish people, <laughs> if I had a young player I was coaching, I'd be like, let's not drop shot. I know one player who has an extraordinary drop shot. But unless it's like beautiful, like if you, if you don't hit it right, you have given away the point. Yeah. Why, not, and then why not try to hit it to the baseline? Right. And like,
1: but I think with Murray, too, you see in his game somewhat maybe of um, uh, the person. Right. They say this um, Brazilians with their love of um, soccer talk about it. You know, the personality You have to have a personality. And I think with tennis players as well, stands kind of like the uh, poet Maldi, you know, I mean, he's he's the he's supposed to win big and then kind of completely not win at all in some other tournaments because he's
0: so wait okay so if you're reading the personalities of the let's do the top players right and we talked about Djokovic plays with a need to be loved right Mm -hmm. so then what would be the personality you see emanating from the game of of Federer and Nadal
1: uh relationships uh let me explain uh Federer uh still but even more so when he was younger had so much squash in his game those gets on the forehand and backhand side with the yes f- uh flick and you know and he's somebody who grew up playing squash with his dad a lot there's a lot of nostalgia in Frederick's game the servant volley the one-handed backhand right um and i'm somebody who i think growing up being from the anglophone caribbean and a lot of the sports that has been kind of like infused from me from my family is also nostalgic, right? That love of cricket. Not nostalgic for the era, but for the sport, you know, and loving things as kids. And with Naval as well, you see a right-hander playing left-handed, right? And really being millimetric in his shot production. And that's from his Uncle Tony, who he basically not just grew up with, but continue to have an entire career with. I think about those things more, I guess that's what's the weird um, me angle in this book. But when I see a tennis player doing something, I don't just think of the physical aspect, but kind of like, you know, the palimpsest, the kind of like messages on the notepad that aren't there anymore, except for the ghosting scratches. And so, yeah, with those two, I I definitely think um, relationships. And I guess Djokovic as well, in the sense that that sense of relief that he has after a match, it's not private. It's this Want to share with like, all the sides, and it comes out in a way that well, it seems very scripted. But you know, a lot, a lot of these, a lot of these tennis players, you know, what they hope to achieve, to do, has been in front of them since they were five or six. So I'm not surprised when they have scripted emotions. Remember when he finally won the French? What he did? No. He did the Guga heart in the ah. Uh, in the clay, and then laid down in the middle of it, scratched uh, out. But he did ask Guga beforehand. Corner. But there is, yeah, there's a bit Gustavo of
0: Curtin. Uh, yeah, Gustavo Curtin. Yeah, Gustavo
1: Curtin, the great Brazilian player. Um, Footnotes for this talk will be available. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Are we going to need an anger translator too for I, for? Uh...
0: <laughs> <laughs> we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... hear a feed of episodes from across npr's podcast that center black voices turn on npr today and hear a range of voices as varied as nuanced and as black as we are stories should never be about us without us listen now to black stories black truths from npr wherever you get your podcasts influencer it's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. And, you, know, you see in Nadal the love of practice, right? Like yeah. I'll run down every ball, do whatever. I mean, he's he's the ultimate defensive player, right? Whereas Federer is quite often offensive and wanting to dominate the entire point. Yeah, um, it's interesting. It's just an interesting psychological difference between them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and how they've made each other um, pick up aspects of their their game. I mean, Federer's become a much more robust defensive player, and Naval has really kind of looked to get off the court.
0: We also point out that he's had to pick up his serve. Yes. That, that, he, that he used to just kind of start the point. For an elite level, it was just starting the point. Yeah. yeah. And now it's become much more of a weapon. Um, you spend a lot of time on one of the most enigmatic players of the era, Nick Kyrgios. And I think this is a really interesting and smart uh, description of Kyrgios psychologically, especially for someone who you've you've never interviewed him, right? You're just sort of reading it from, you're such a poet. I'm going to vibe who you are from afar. (laughs) I want to read a little bit of this and let you talk about Kyrgios. He, and Nick Kyrgios is what, 6'3", 6'4"? Yeah, it's about 6'4. Brown, Australian, uh, amazing talent. He's beaten Nadal, he's beaten Federer, he's beaten Djokovic. You know, they all know, But then he'll lose to, you know, the 40th ranked guy in pathetic fashion that's like, did he even show up? And it's, it's, he's one of those talents that you're like, you could be one of the best in the world, but for some reason you don't want to be, I don't understand. And you write, he. Nick Kyrgios, he and tennis are at odds, and he lashes out at it. There's not much in the way of sympathy or empathy that comes his way from people who have paid to see a proper match, and let's be honest, aren't inclined to root for him anyway because he is brown and calcitrant, is not what the people who pay top dollar for a Grand Slam or Masters 1000 in search of a tennis experience are looking for. Foolish, but not stupid. (laughs) I love that. He must sense this. Because it looks like he carries this dark cloud often to the court with him. Therefore, instead of being antagonized, he chooses to be the antagonist. He made himself unlikable before most of the world had a chance to choose whether to like him or dislike him. Really interesting analysis there. Um, I mean, God, what is up with this guy? Hmm. Ah,
1: life, you know, he's, he's young and he's on the, he's on the grind of the circuit, you know, um, whatever's happening with him. He's, you know, um, very recently, I think within the last month decided to see someone he can talk to about it regularly and really? try to make some changes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He's seen he, a therapist. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yep, just
1: news news from last month. Um, And very good for him because um, he's a phenomenal player and he seems like a pretty good cat. Um, Locker rooms are their own kind of like, you know, space-time with their own gravitational force and people seem to love him in the locker room, right? People seem to really get on well with him, except for the few really famous uh, problems he's had. But he doesn't seem to me like a bad cat, just kind of not in a situation where he's able yet to figure out what he wants or why he's doing what he's doing, which means he's somebody in his early 20s.
0: I mean, I think tanking, uh, losing on purpose, not giving your best effort is a reflection of your character and a very poor one. And not just because these people paid to watch you, but because... God, your parents, your family, your community gave you the chance to get to this level and you're just dogging it,
1: right? Well, this is this is like the difference between being foolish and being uh, stupid because there's tanking, right? I don't want to play this match. I'm going to double fault. Then there's what he did, for instance, at the Shanghai Masters in 2016, which was he like badminton served the ball in and then he just walked off the court. When I see that, there's something beyond tanking that's going on there. There's kind of like a willfulness to say, I'm checking out and I want you to see. It's almost the inverse of Djokovic's, I've won, here I stand my heart out to you. It's more kind of like, not only do I not want to be here, but I'm not going to make any pretense about it. Which shows to me a great disconnect between um, how you're feeling and where you are. You know what I mean? It's one thing to... Let's say, I've got dinner reservations, and I really don't want to miss this meal. I'm out of this match is one thing. It's another thing when you don't got anything else going on. I want to play some Fortnite, <laughs> you
0: know what I mean? And this match might net me 17 grand, but. It just seems a shame to see him uh, misuse his talent in yeah. this way.
1: Well, it's also it's a shame for his uh, opponent. It's a shame for fans who want to see a good match. It's a it's a shame for everyone involved, but like I write in that section, it's a shame also in part because it's boring. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a way in which um, we've all seen this before. Um, and there must be something more interesting. If he hates tennis, or if one hates tennis, I would think it would be really great not to then... Um, basically do a performance art imitation of the great, 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 like, symbol of tennis, which is like the enfant terrible, right? The mm, bad boy. Mm. That's as much a part of tennis as Wimbledon White's, for better or for worse, right? So in a way, his rejection, his rebellion against tennis is falling right back into doing something that is ultra tennis.
0: No, you're right. There's always been at least one guy around. I mean, there was Nastasi and then get Connors they get Um and they've tried really hard to stamp it out. they're they like you know the powers that be don't want yeah. that element, even in the Hawkeye
1: game. helps right
0: yeah, it does it does yeah, I'm- but there's still trouble <laughs> <laughs> why. Why has the big three lasted so long? Mm. I just looked up 2004, 2005, Federer and Nadal start to really dominate. Yeah. Um, nobody, I think Peyton Manning won the MVP that year. Um, I forget who it was in basketball. But, I mean, everybody who was an MVP in baseball, basketball, and football is retired. Mm-hmm. You know, and Federer, st- I mean, and Nadal So Why? Are they unique historical figures? Is it also well, they're, you know, taking advantage of modern medicine and understanding to be able to, you know, because we do see people extending their careers in other sports into their late thirties, but this seems to be unique in all of sports.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think from 2004, I think from 2004 until now, Federer, Naval, and Djokovic won 50 of the 60. Right. Uh, grand slams. When you talk about Nadal and Federer going all the way back to 2004 and still winning majors, I think um, one of it, I mean, let's isolate Nadal. There's always the French Open. I mean, he might win that until he's 40, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, he's got and so 10 of them. That's 11. 11.
0: That's 11. That's
1: obscene. Yeah, It is obscene. <laughs> um, but they're, they're really rare, rare, rare athletes. Um, and they've been better than everybody else. I can't think of a player from, and they're different generations, right? But I can't think of a player from the 2004-ish generation to the 2017-ish generation where I think, oh man, they should have won more majors instead of Federer and Naval. Can you? I can do that when the in the 80s, right? I could think like, wow, I'm shocked McEnroe didn't win a French, right? Or like, Whoa, I'm kind of shocked that Agassi only, only won eight majors, right? You can think of certain, certain years where, oh, this or that, but I can't think of a single player in a single Because year. none
0: of them would have broken through the Nadal, Djokovic, Federer. I mean, there's, there's the three of them being great and taking advantage of modern medicine. But also in sports understanding of the body. Industry.
1: Oh, and consistency. They've had basically the same boxes, the same coaching staff and support group, right? Nadal, it's been his family. And up until this year, in 2017, the year of the book, they bring in former number one Carlos Moya. Carlos Moya. But other than that, it's, it's the family from his start. Right, and that's
0: Tony decided to stay home. I And with Federer, the same. love how the, the doll box, they always sit in the same order. <laughs> or everything. It, every, everything mom, in its right the place. the the sister, the <laughs> dad. They're always in this every single match. I'm like, wow.
1: And then they watch the same points being played out. I
0: right. wonder if Nadal's OCD on the court, you know, he doesn't step on the lines. He arranges the bottles of water mm-hmm. just so. If that is meant to free him. We are in such a deep level of routine about everything except hitting the ball. So then I really don't think about anything else. It's a way to not be, you're sort of walling off half of the activities out here are just routinized to where I do not think about them and I can only focus on just the problem of beating this person.
1: That's right. I think you nailed it, right? I mean, you control everything you can't control. I was talking to Um, A good friend and fellow tennis nut yesterday just about this with Nadal. I've got a question for you. Australian Open is not too far away. Yay. (laughs) Right now the world rankings are world number one is Djokovic, world number two is Nadal, world number three is, oh, is number three Zarev now or Federer? Well, one is three and one is four. Federer's won the last two Australian Opens, but Djokovic has won a bunch of them. So you imagine the world number one is going to be the number one seed. Is Naval going to be the number two seed, even though Federer has won the last two Australian opens? And would Naval complain about this? Because while I don't know that he would care or not, he definitely strikes me as somebody who would want to be able to control everything that he can control. And something like being the number two seed versus the three or four seed could be a really big difference. Yeah, you'd
0: rather be the two. Oh yeah. Um you don't have to face Novak in a semi, you just get him in the final if he gets there. Yeah. I mean, even if you're two, you may end up facing Federer earlier, right, in the semi yeah, as right. well that's versus right. being the one. I mean, I you know, I don't know. I bet I, I would imagine Nadal just looks at it as I'm just gonna mow down whoever is in front of me.
1: Uh, you know? See, I asked only because of that, because I'm wondering if he's he would think my ranking is my ranking, and I should be the second seed because this is something I can control. At I mean,
0: least, th- I mean that is the argument that I would fall back on that I would right. assume at a place like the Australian Open, like the rank, you know, the rankings of the rankings, and I, you know, I don't care that you won it before. I mean, they've all everybody in this conversation has won this thing, right. so you there know. There you go. There you go. But you know, I remember Federer. Did an interview where he said part of why the next generations, plural, because they've really been dominant over two generations. Yeah, it's incredible. Have not supplanted them is that the net game really went away. And yep. you saw just power baseliners coming in. And it would be impossible for those sort of folks to beat an all-court game like his or of highly developed baseline game like Nadal's I mean Djokovic is Djokovic is more of a hybrid right he'll come in and end the points a lot Nadal really doesn't want to come in that much right he'll volley no but, but he's a
1: fantastic that volleyer that's he, why he's so good at doubles
0: he's yeah he's he's a he's a good, he's a good volleyer right but he'll win the points on the baseline uh, Djokovic is a little bit more all court yeah Federer is totally all court yeah. Um, and the next generation,
1: Murray has a really good net game too,
0: yeah, but the, but I, what do you think about that the oldest people?
1: no, I think you're I think you're right. I just think if you extend it to the big four um Mm-mm. they 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 have i would i think the four best net games on the men's tour as well. uh Murray and Naval are fantastic doubles players, fantastic double players. they just don't do it uh that much. Joke Fix doesn't play doubles. Well, I wouldn't call – no, I take that back. Djokovic is not one of the best four net minders in the uh, game. But he has a dependable net game, and he'll, he'll get in. Um, you'll find other players are just disasters at the net. And I think that, yeah, that's a huge difference. Zverev, now that he's getting good, you see him coming to the net more. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something that's also, I think, going
0: to be a big thing for next year,
1: whether he could get off the court a bit quicker in some earlier matches and go further in grand slams
0: who out of the out of the five who we just mentioned outside of them
1: mm-hmm.
0: who will be the next person to win a major <sighs> um the, there's the the Tsitsipas, Anderson, Nishikori, Zverev. All right, I got it.
1: I got it. I'm going to go on the limb and say that the next—you're not going to like this—the next person who's not one of those big five to win a Grand Slam will be Dominic Team at
0: Roland Garros. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's in, That's that that. No, that's interesting. That I mean, that I I could see that. I'm not sure how Team gets past Nadal because it doesn't seem like like Team's doing a similar thing, and he's not doing it as well as Nadal is.
1: Well, picture Federer didn't get past Nadal in 2009. Picture that year where Nadal runs into Djokovic or runs into um um. Zverev, who's beaten him, actually. He beat him in uh, Rome, I think, in 2017. But just kind of like, just something where something goes off for Nadal. It doesn't have to be head-to-head with mm-hmm. team. Team's also sure. beaten Nadal um, on clay. But that's the one that I see. I need to see Zverev in a second week a bit more. <sighs> he's um, such
0: a disappointment. In he's well, 21. Zverev was groomed for this you know he's been a, a child in, among the game for a, you know this whole life He's, he, he doesn't. I determine. I 21. I, I judge you. I mean, come on. We grew up on McEnroe. I know. He I was 19 know, in the finals now. of Wimbledon. I hear you. I hear you. you. Know, it's just Jimmy Connors. Now. I know it's different. I know you it's gotta different. You got to coddle him. You got to coddle him. The guy is number four, <laughs> sometimes number three, on the strength of things that he's doing outside of the four majors. That's right. And, and I, in my heart, I judge you based on what you do in the majors. Sure.
1: Sure. Well, he's got to. He knows what's ahead of him, um, and it's kind of like seeing those four tournaments through to at least you know the semis at this point. That's where he should be. But he just won London. His game has to change from best of three to best of five. Um, I do think there's things that are tennis related in that that I hope he's addressing. I trust he is. But like he will play too many like twenty stroke big points to kind of get through. a lot of
0: tremendous heart. I wonder if Anderson's going to break, Kevin Anderson from South Africa. I wonder if he's going to break through and win a major, oh. something faster. He's not, you know. Well, only
1: Australia's fast now. That's something, that's kind of one of the elephants in the room we haven't talked about. That the courts have basically been homogenized. They, the, the speeds have been slowed down. So basically the grass in Wimbledon, the past number of years, has been reseeded to give a bigger bounce and play slower um slower than wimbledon traditionally does slower yes and slower than grass used to
0: so but it's still faster than a u.s open hard court
1: um well yes because that's another story the u.s open courts have been severely slowed this year if you notice it was like they were playing on blue clay i thought that 2017 the year of the circuit was slow but this year um and it's on record by Uh, United States Tennis Association authorities, I believe that's correct. It's on record that they intentionally slowed the court even more this year. Sure. Because they thought that that would be helping the American players. I'm not really sure how they came to that.
0: Well, yeah, I don't know how that. Yeah, I don't know how you break that down. I mean, as I thought you were going to say, as I thought they would say, it's better for the fans. We want longer points. I mean, I think most people don't realize about 70% of the points are going to be four shots or less. Right. You know, right. and, and those points go by so fast that most people don't realize most of the match was very short. Right. You know, service winner or a mistake off the return no, or a mistake off the first shot. Yeah, yeah. You know.
1: But, but it was so hot at the US Open this year that those longer points led to longer matches and it really kind of like affected a bunch of players. Yeah. Um, but what you're finding now is that it's hard to find surfaces where it's kind of like you have specialists anymore. Right. Um, because they're mandatory tournaments, the Masters, for instance, but also um, the best players are incredibly competitive on all the surfaces. One difference and one exception has been the Australian Open, which has gone the other way, and its court's incredibly fast, and you've seen the benefits of that. I think that the best um, majors the past two years running have been at the Australian Open, and I also think that the fast court certainly helped Federer.
0: You and I are about the same age and as tennis fans as lifelong tennis fans we have been spoiled in terms of america has been at the top from the you know from my earliest consciousness of tennis it was you know ash and connor's and Mm -hmm. then they handed right over to the McEnroe era handed right over to the sampras agassi era courier was near the top for a while it's you know we have been near and then suddenly u.s men the women have continued to be extraordinary, but the men have fallen off. I think Roddick's generation was the first one that American men were not really top five and were not really competing in finals all the time. Mm-hmm. And then it's gotten worse. The other day, I think I was like, oh my God, John Isner is the number one player in America. Mm-hmm. Top 10 player. Oh my God.
1: There's something, I think this year there were 11 players in the top 100. Um uh,
0: eleven American men.
1: Yeah, there are eleven American men in the top one hundred and that was the highest number of players from any one nation. Um so there's something that the USTA is doing regarding quantity. At least there are like a lot of American players in the mix, but in terms of competing in the biggest tournaments at the back end of them, um, you know, it's been it's been difficult to assess exactly uh, what's gone wrong? There's, there's, there's kind of like, you know, how college, um, you know, American players, a lot of international players play college now too, so I don't know that that's really what, what it's about. But I have a, let me tell you my own strange um, thought on it. I really wish that American players played on Claymore. And I don't understand why they don't, because um, the resources are there to build tons of clay courts. But you know that American players...
0: that makes you more of a point constructionist rather than going for the hard shot, trying to end it with pace. Exactly. Given that American players overwhelmingly
1: play on uh, hard courts, we're back to the situation you were talking about before regarding quick points um, and not necessarily getting the amount of ball play to think through. Um, extended difficult situations. The shame of it is I think that's supposedly part of the American mentality right? Whether it's our improvisation that we get from jazz and the diaspora to our grittiness and hard work Um, you know and the fact that honestly our greatest players have been wonderful clay players Um, Augustine was a phenomenal clay player. Uh, Michael Chang won the French Open at 17. Chris Everett Lloyd won everything on clay. And I think that, yeah, we would have a different um, aspect, I think, of kind of like American tennis. If we just kind of had some more clay, I think it would be really good for us. And I think it suits what supposedly we bring to the table as athletes, not to kind of generalize. Like Mark Twain said, I hate all generalizations, especially this one. <laughs> but I do think we're too, uh, too much hardcore. Um, the results have been good in terms of in Toto. You could talk about kind of like big numbers. But it would he's, be really nice
0: to see. He spent a lot of time talking about Francis Tifo in yeah. the book, which is uh, he's been he's been very exciting. He plays with a lot of heart. I find yes, his strokes to be awkward <laughs> appearing. Yeah, especially the backhand seems very tortured.
1: Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, and you say tortured, he, I say tinkered with. I, I see him off both wings, and I see. I can still see kind of like the coach being like, "In your elbow, like this, and like your shoulder, like that." There's a lot of. I think.
0: You it know. doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't look natural and smooth. He looks tight, and I'm like, I wanna. I wanna adjust your form right. a little bit so it's more lyrical and flowy and I don't know. I tend to feel like strokes that have more flow will do better when you're really nervous.
1: Mm. Well, he, he his racket speed though is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um and his feet are unbelievable. Um but yeah, it's true. He gets a lot of torque. Um and he's got that unique backswing. Um but right now, for his age, the results have been really good. And I think being either tortured on the mechanics off that wing or tinkered, potato, potato, it's part of his story. You know what I mean? He's, he's, uh, he's, he's a tennis player that was kind of like, you know. Um, well, it's a great story. Yeah. He was unexpected. Was, his trajectory with tennis was unexpected.
0: Yeah, he was, he was the, the groundskeeper's boy. Boy, that's right. At a, at a fancy tennis club. Where was it?
1: in maryland in maryland yeah and hitting he, against a wall when he could he, and the he,
0: he like just showed an aptitude and suddenly they let him out there with the rich kids and suddenly he was better than them and yeah. next thing you know he's playing national tournaments and and doing very well and it's it's an incredible story yeah yeah and so he what does eating healthy mean to you T H R I V E market dot com slash Tore Thrive market slash Tore.
1: Yeah, his form, I just take it to be part of that. That's part of his story. And uh, it seems to be going well for him. I hope that it, it goes even better. It's it's good for tennis. Um, and it's good to see um, players with that type of, like you said, um, how did you put it? You put it really well. Heart. It's yeah. It's like, oh, good to see.
0: Once more, I want to give a shout out to Policy Genius, long-term supporter of the show. And yes, they know life insurance is not a fun topic, but you know what is even less fun? Sitting up at night thinking about, God forbid something happens to me, I get hit by a truck, I fall in a ditch, I disappear... And then what's going to happen to my family? Because everything we do is about taking care of our family and providing the best we can for our family. And you can take care of your family even if you're not here. God forbid you should drop dead. You can take care of your family if you have life insurance. And it's not fun, but it's important. And it does help you sleep at night knowing that they will be taken care of, your kids, your wife, your husband, they'll be taken care of if you're not here. The easiest way to get life insurance is to go to Policy Genius. And in minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find the coverage you need at an affordable price. You can apply online, and the unbiased advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape so you can get back to the stuff you enjoy, like hanging out with your family rather than worrying about taking care of them. And Policy Genius isn't just about life insurance. You can do homeowner's insurance. You can get auto insurance. You can get anything. So if you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, or you just thought it was boring, don't worry about it. Go to Policy Genius. It'll take just a couple of minutes. You can do it on your phone, policygenius.com. Get it done. Take care of your family. Know that you can be there for them even if a truck hits you today. Policy Genius: the easy way to compare and buy life insurance and make sure your family is taken care of even if you drop dead. All right, I want to argue with you about one you make <laughs> late in the book, but not what we were emailing about. Oh, um, you talk about, because you're actually a player, as am I, uh, go, you talk about serving on the deuce side. Go for the tee right down the middle of the court. The risk is that it's the smallest of the three targets, and missing, missing it leaves you facing a more compromised second serve. The reward is that it's the more, most difficult shot to return, especially effectively, and it goes to the returner's backhand. Uh, no, I disagree. Um, you, you are arguing, you are saying that serving down the T is better for the server. I think I get more aces going out wide. Hmm. Even if I don't hit it hard, mm-hmm. if I get the right slice on it and I get it on the sideline... Mm-hmm. It's way off the court. It might be relatively slow, but I can get aces that way. And even if I miss the spot out wide, you're starting the point in the doubles alley. I love that. Right? You're mm-hmm. already off the—you can only come back cross court. You can't come back down the line from way—so you're already in the corner. If I don't hit the T, can't—it's easier to hit an ace down the T because it's physically shorter. right? But— If I miss it with the pace or the spot, you're starting the point right in the middle of the court. True. But if you miss it going wide, you might groove
1: my forehand, right? If you miss wide out, it's just wide out. Hmm. But if you miss in, you might be going right into my swing pattern, right? You're going right in my swing path. Um, I'll have to add any power because it's coming off your you know, ace looking first serve and I've got a I've got basically the whole court, either down the line or cross court. I understand where you're coming from. It's just kind of, that's what I like about um, the formulas of tennis. There's risk inherent in everything. It's kind of how you calculate um, the risk. And that's part of what's fun about writing about a whole year on the tour. Because if I play you and you do that to me, and then I see you two tournaments later, all of a sudden, it's not just the point. People watching going, oh, this point is happening. But there's this whole history of last time I did this to him, last time he did this to me. So that was more kind of, so even that narrative right there, which is kind of like in somebody's head as they're kind of like working out where the server's coming from, kind of rationalizing what they might do and what they might not do.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it's fascinating, the sort of chess matches that are happening out there.
1: And I learned something about how you play, because even if you miss going down the tee, and I get it, I have it in the middle of the court, but I'm not in any position to really hit a winner off you. You know you're going to be in a position to, the point will go on, you know, but if you go down the tee and I get it, I may have won the position, but there's no way I'm hitting anything that you're not getting to. You know what
0: I mean? So I have position, but not... I mean, I see this constantly. I refer to it as the pro pattern in that oh, okay. they serve wide and then they hit to the other side. That's right. And it's, it's, e- even for Federer, it's very difficult to defend against that. If I can get it not on the service line but on the sideline, just even a little bit, there's almost – if I can just get it to the other side, you can't, you can't do anything.
1: But now we're going to get into the whole, like, Wally, Sean, and the Princess Bride thing. What if I also am p- anticipating you doing that? So I cheat, right? So it becomes a shot where if I know it's coming, it becomes less an effective shot for you because I have a sense of.
0: I mean, I don't mind you. I, see, I don't mind you anticipating that. If good. you want to start the point in the doubles alley, good for you. You're going to be <laughs> running the whole rest of the point. I mean, anything. I don't even have to hit it hard if I just scoop it to the other side. Just direct it to the other side. Now you have to run six steps to get to that ball.
1: What if I return the ball with a lot of top spin deep, which forces you back, which gives me time to recover?
0: I mean, if you want to lob off the return, that's fine. I mean, you know, that, that would be a difficult shot. I think my serve, especially going out wide, is probably going to have so much side spin that it's going to be harder mm. to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean,. But unless, unless your ball is going to hit, like, the baseline, <laughs> I'm going to take it out of the air. Good. Right? I mean, like, Good, I mean the, the Williams sisters show, like, you have to t- do a swinging forehand there. You, have to, you can't let it bounce and back up. You have to take it out of the air. And that sort of revolutionized the game as well. Mm. Um, but, yeah.
1: So then we'd move over then to the ad side, and I'd see what you have there. And on the story would go That's why I love this game Forgive us for geeking out Well, actually, don't forgive us It's how we roll, I guess But yeah, I love it I love it It's problem solving, right? I mean, it's problem solving in three dimensions And you kind of like I could tell how much you love the game um, Because yeah, you get into it like this You start to think about kind of like patterns And kind of,
0: yeah Hell yeah Yeah, yeah You um, are also just a highly awarded and noted poet um which is kind of amazing i didn't know people could make money as a poet (laughs) i didn't didn't realize that but i want to hear um you just talk about sentences a little bit because you do you have some great sentences throughout this book thank you um and uh just, just some thoughts on your approach to sentences, mm. what you want to accomplish. And I know everyone is different. And, and, the, and the effect is of the long sentence followed by the short sentence. And the, the, so I understand this is not like one formula, but yeah. just some of your thinking about how you approach sentence structure.
1: Um, well, you know, for me, poetry begins with a syllable. So writing this book is really different because, like you said, you're thinking more in terms of sentences. For me, a poem doesn't, um, its basic unit um, isn't uh, the sentence or even the phrase. It's the, uh, uh is different from E or O or U. And poetry builds off that. It's like music in that sense. Um, But, you know, in writing prose and writing nonfiction and telling stories, there's this kind of like chain you're almost kind of like building a hallway that somebody's walking through. And the sentence is, each brick, but not just under their feet, but you got to give somebody something to look at, something above to make them feel that there's something above their head or at least some sense of limits. Um, I love the way that um, tents can tell a story. Um, Farrar, Scru- uh, Scross, and Drew did such a great job with this book. I remember having a few queries from the copy editor about um, tents, And I, you know, well, you start in the past and you end up in the present and then you go back to the past. And should we kind of like make it uniform? And I was like, no, no, no. Because sometimes when you're telling a story, just like when we were going through a few imaginary tennis points, it's not just the present, but it's the past and the future. And they kind of all inform what you might do. We see this in everything from, um, tennis matches to whether or not a police officer is going to step to you or not. Mm. right? Um, and so for me, the sentence is both a, um, attempt at a parlay, right? Kind of like a corridor. We could have some type of agreement that may turn into a disagreement at some point. Um, but it's basically creating a world that makes sense. Sometimes in the narrative, almost like in German, I'll save the subject until the end of the sentence because I want when you walk in, to a match. It's like when you walk in sometimes to uh, a match, and first there's the corridor, and you walk out onto a stadium, and everything opens up. And then you kind of orient yourself, and you see, okay, who's playing here and who's playing there? And that's the way that you take it in. Or even when you turn it on, um, the TV, and the circuit is in part like a love song to the spectator and spectatorship. Oh, wait, who's playing? And then, oh, you look up in the corner of the screen or at the bottom, what's the score? So sometimes I have a, a sentence or even a paragraph that's working out those types of descriptions until it comes into focus into what the subject is. This is who's playing, and this is what the score is. But first, maybe you've noticed the crowd, or maybe you've noticed, wait, why the hell did my alarms go off at 4.15? Oh, that's right. I'm going to watch this Australian Open semifinal. I totally forgot. Um, so yeah, you know, the sentences are um, a type of uh, reality and a type of um, agreement-making pattern with the reader, I guess. Ultimately, I hope that I write a sentence that a reader wants to read again, wants to come back yes, to yes, again. Yes. Um, and I won't say that that's the goal as I'm writing, but, but um, hopefully that's an added benefit to thinking like that about sentences.
0: Um, is there something specific and unique to black poetry, to African-American poetry I know if we're talking about African-American music uh, as, as broad and varied as it is, I could talk about their certain commonalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried once to do a piece, of, an, uh, an essay when I was in graduate school on what is unique to black writing and I could not find any commonality, Mm. Um, which is great. We are so broad and varied that there's not... But do you see something just within poetry?
1: In the words themselves, no. But in the discovery of um, an identity and then trying to uh, makes sense of a plurality and celebrating its um, complexity, I think yes. I think it's really useful to think, you know, um, this poetry is the result of an African diaspora and an American circumstance. And when we kind of like put it together and think about it as a result of that and where we're at um, in light of that, then yes. But I don't think that there's something um, essentially Black when you Open a book of poems, and you read it to go. Aha! Um, there is blackness here. Sometimes, um, sometimes that works out given um, subject matter and the such. But you know, I'm someone with my name. You you don't know what country I'm from, what color I am,
0: but my gender. You know, like, like you just had Sonia Sanchez on sure. the show, mm-hmm. and I feel like. In a blind taste test, you know, with it removing the byline, I would be like, that's a black poet. Sure. I feel like, you know, a but lot of... But that's part that.
1: of her aesthetic. That's not That's not kind of, like, essential to... She wouldn't write a grocery list, and you'd say, like, that's a black person writing a grocery list. She was deeply informed by the need for the poem to also um, represent a manifest um, and beautiful black identity, you know, and that's awesome. I'm just saying that in that is not inherently... Um, in the script of all black writing. I don't think, yes, you know, the blue notes, when you talk about music, that's something that was in the ships that brought us here.
0: Yes. You know, and you don't see that in the poetry and it's just,
1: I don't think that it is. I don't think it is inherently in a black person's poetry. I'm saying it's not like an inherent, um, you know, we all as artists are, um, we're kind of like the material of our inheritances, right? James Baldwin, um, shout out to the Bronx and Clinton <laughs> High School. <laughs> um, he has a lot of William James in his sentences, just the way that Toni Morrison has a lot of Faulkner in hers. That's not about being influenced by, that's about kind of almost like wrestling your angels into song. You know, we're made up of a real complex plurality. Um, and at its best, it sings to the diaspora that we come from. Um, but just like um, the diversity of our looks, you know, I think that sometimes if you can see a sister or a brother who doesn't look like a sister or brother, then you're like, oh, wait, they're black. That happens on the page um, as well sometimes. But it's important, I think, to, um, yeah, it's important to think about how we move in communities, right? So for instance, I think about your question this way as well. Um, I'm certainly Caribbean-American, right? I mean, I was born I here, uh, Antigua. Um, and so my experience in learning about the Black literary tradition was about learning about the Black literary tradition, which um, I'm certainly a part of, but you know, my roots are in the Caribbean. So also when I write, I'm also this hybrid of traditions certainly caribbean uh black american american and trying to make sense of them in a way that's right i can't just put myself on an african-american timeline because i'm also certainly you know i didn't grow up with the ame my church was the moravian church and Wesleyan hymns and so i can't um lose or erase part of that to 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 add myself to a timeline that's american that's already there i have to kind of like braid you know where i come from and what's part of me to that so that they both make sense to uh, to a reader to myself
0: um you want to talk about some tennis books that you have loved that you would recommend oh, sure. to folks if they finish yours and they want to read more sure sure
1: sure um you know, John McPhee's levels of the game. Ooh, you right. started
0: right there. Yeah, the, the, I mean,
1: I don't think I write the circuit without without that great book about, you know, Arthur Ashe and Carl Grabner and that U.S. Open um, final. That's I think that's where...
0: 1968? Yeah. U.S. Open final. Yeah. I mean, he describes it cinematically. You know, Ashe tosses the ball into the air... And it floats and turns in the air, and <laughs> and then all of a sudden we're in Virginia. Right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. <straffle> right, 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 <speaking> right. Doctor <Dr>. <laughs> <thing. laughs> yeah, yeah, card, yeah.
1: Virginia, nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's a it's a marvelous book, um, and really a great influence on um, on my writing, and on my thinking. Um, the circuit is dedicated to uh, Louisa Thomas who is a phenomenal tennis writer. She writes uh, tennis for the New Yorker um, and other places. She used to be at Grantland. She's a great inspiration for me, and I think that her writing on contemporary tennis is is peerless. Um, I've really enjoyed um, some recent histories. Uh, Love Game is a book that I really enjoyed. John Wertheim's Strokes of Genius, of course. Um, Steve Tignor wrote a really wonderful book on... um, John McEnroe and John Borg.
0: He's a good player. I Man. played with Tigner 20 years ago.
1: See, I have not, but I know him as a legend. He went to my alma mater, Swarthmore College. Okay. Um, and I think he's in the uh, Hall of Fame there. Um, but he, I've not played with him, but word is he hits with a one-handed now, one-handed now. It's almost like reverse migration, the way that lots of black folk are moving south. You know, he's going from a two-handed backhand no, as a you're, youth.
0: You're totally right. When I was growing up, uh, Chris Everett and Jimmy Connors were big. Mid-70s, everybody was learning two-handed backhands. I think a little bit older than me, you might have had one. But from me to the next 20, everybody was two-hander. And then mm. suddenly, in the last, what, 10, 15 years, the return of the one-hander. Perfect. The Federer effect. I mean, I I guess. I mean, I guess. I mean, I mean. Sampras didn't have that effect. Uh, no. I don't know.
1: It's Federer effect.
0: I guess.
1: You know, you've seen some kids. You've seen some kids out there where you hit, where they're getting trained, and they say, "Oh, I want to hit with a one-handed backhand." It's Federer effect. I,
0: I mean, you know, I. I could probably learn to do it now at the level of strength as a grown man. But when I was 12, I don't think I could have done it. And that's why so many people become two-handers. Because when you're 10 and 12, it's hard to do. It's it's easier to do with two hands.
1: So let me tell you something that I hope you get a kick out of. Are
0: you one or two? I'm both. What do you mean both? Uh,
1: I mean, well, so I was one. This will tie into what I was going to tell you. I was a one-handed uh, player. After I tore my Achilles, my balance is still all off. So I started hitting with two because it was more stable. Um, but I found myself still, um, it's almost like switching languages. Uh, in returning serve, my instincts were still to return with one hand. But it would kind of then, discombobulating me a little bit going from return to the rest of the point. So uh, the pro I would hit with, he was just like, just using both. He was like, I hit both. It doesn't matter. So now I just, I find myself hitting with both. However, I decided last weekend that I need to just kind of commit to one because I don't take it seriously enough. When you hit with two backhands, now I know why people really don't. Because there's some, you take away a little bit of thought process. So what did you commit to? I haven't yet i oh, I'm, yeah, I'm going to commit. I'm going to. You haven't
0: figured out which way you would. Okay. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> I should probably do two, but there's something now to loop back to what I was going to tell you. I should probably do two, but there's something that um, is leaving me thinking still about hitting with and staying with one. Um, and it's the following: I have not played with you, but I would have said 75% chance that you hit with a one-handed backhand because Why? I would have I, I would have recognized you as uh a black gentleman of of a certain age who grew up playing tennis which meant that you played with gentlemen of a certain age who hit with a one-handed backhand right that's
0: why i would have thought no no you know. no, no no at my age everybody was taught two-hand two-hand oh. two-hand you know um
1: because for instance have you come across um You know, I've been some places talking about this book, and people are like, oh, what about tennis? And I'm like, you know, it shouldn't surprise you that I'm Caribbean and I love tennis, because Caribbean folk love tennis. But um, how many of the uh, Jamaican and other Caribbean coaches and pros around here hit with a one-hander or a two-hander? I bet you they almost all hit with a one-hander.
0: I think think so. It's like almost one of
1: those things like,
0: you know. you 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 delineated on the return, and I have found, and I picked this up from Djokovic, that he's, he's standing there with his right hand in the forehand grip and his left hand in the backhand that's right and it's easy for him to just shift a little bit as he's turning doing the unit turn to get into the right grip either uh, to get into the right backhand grip and the forehand grip you just you're already there Yeah, yeah even against a really hard serve i can have the time to get ready uh I don't know. I mean, I guess you could do no that. No question, with one-hander. it's a better
1: but No, No no question, two hands is a better return. No question. The problem is, I'm used to, because I had a one-hander, flipping the racket. I'm used sure. to holding it by the neck and flipping it, flipping it, flipping it. Sure. But I don't have the muscle memory then to do that and then get into go position with a two-hander yeah. because I've not been hitting with a two-hander that often.
0: What racket do you play with?
1: Um, free advertising for this racket. Uh, Babala. I use a Babala um, Pure Strike.
0: Do you use a pure strike? The yeah. white one. The white one, yeah. Oh the yeah, yeah. I, I used the Nadal the arrow. Ah. the yellow.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got a couple of those. Yeah. That's a nice sturdy frame, man. I've been thinking about hitting with some other rackets. Um, but I really like I really like that racket.
0: I was a prince player my whole life until two years ago. I was like, this I gotta I gotta I gotta do something different. And I saw all the I saw so many good, really good young players. Playing with the arrow, oh, the yeah. Babolat arrow. And I'm like... Super light, super
1: that? sturdy. I still, I, I, I still tear up a little bit when you say Prince, so
0: yeah. forgive me. No, I mean, like it, it, it Prince revolutionized the game yeah. in terms of creating those oversized rackets and the big sweet spots. And, uh, you know, a lot of old people use those, but a lot of juniors got a lot of mileage out of you. That's I was, right. I was all about the Prince. That's right. Um, what else I oh... God, Ash. I mean, we are a little too young to have seen yeah. the playing career, but... Yeah. Marvelous biography out now. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. have you watched Speaking of one-handed much? backhands,
1: uh, YouTube, you know, this is what I'm useful, uh, grateful to, yeah. technology for. Like, you know, I caught up uh, on a lot of cricket with my father, thanks to
0: watching clips. And
1: yeah, Ash, just kind of watching whatever I can and wishing that I was able to see more you know um
0: you know, such an extraordinary guy i
1: really wish he were i really wish he was on the tour now for on court and off court reasons
0: yeah off court as well i mean we wish for the athletes to take their you know to take a stand to use their platform you know and kaepernick does it and he seems, but ash was very much kaepernick-esque in his time and really cared about the world Um, was you know all about you know freedom from apartheid and really was central in creating the ATP and unionizing the players and getting the players what they deserved. and it was not easy to do and Jimmy Connors stood against it even as he was number one it's an extraordinary story and um Ash truly revolutionized the game not just as being a black man there, but uh, but caring about the world and caring about the world that the players were operating in as businessmen.
1: That's right. Well, and also as as you know, ethical ethical people, you know, thinking about where you're going to play and what is what what message does that send to the world. I also wonder. Um, you know, he was able to um, be all that and still be patriotic. And I wonder, mm-hmm. uh, you know, famously wearing the USA jumper in the final against Connors when mm-hmm. Connors wouldn't play. I think it was on the uh, Davis Cup team and stuff like that. And just, you know, those types of um, balances that are, that are tough and that he did with such elegance. Was, I just wish he was around.
0: Extraordinary. Um, this has been lovely. It really thank has. Thank you so much. It really has. Geekin good to know.
1: I, I know, you. right?
0: We are complex folks. Now I have to now I I I have to see how good you are. I have to see. Clay court though, please. <laughs> <laughs> my knees. Oh yeah. man, thank you so That's much. That's my pleasure to, mm, yes, my pleasure, indeed. man. Yes, indeed. Thanks so much to Rowan for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Toray Show gives you that fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Instagram at Torre Show and on Twitter at Torre. Please subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends. You know the drill. Tore shows written by me, Tore and produced by Chris Colbert and Tyrese Hester with help from Candon Nicole and our photographer, Chuck Marcus. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down.